It's uh, a great honor and a privilege to be able to come to you this morning and to share the word. For those of you who do not know me, I'm Kathy Peternell. I'm the director of pastoral care, and we do care about you. And we would like to know when there are challenges that come into your family. Come and search us out. We're here for you. And also, those wonderful Legacy Life people are mine. <laughs> and Pastor jo or Josh was just digging his hole deeper the further he went, I thought. <laughs> but um, we do have a luncheon coming up, and we love those that are 55 and older. But we even have folks that sneak in that are younger to come and join us. So please sign up. Go with us. We had 70 out the last time we met here. So I was really thrilled to hear that. Okay. Although there are about 400 and some of you. So I'd like to see you join us. Um, we're going to go, and, and it's great to have the folks that can join us online. Um, thanks for being part of our family today. We want to go to the second chapter of 2 Samuel. And we are, uh, we've come across two words. You know, I don't think anything in the Bible is happenstance. And here are two words. After this. So let's pray and see what God's going to give us after this. All right. Father, we thank you this morning once again for this privilege. I look at life and I am grateful for every day you give me. And I know, Lord, that there never happenstance. And there never happenstance in any of our lives. You've brought us to this day because you have purpose for this day for us. And Lord, I pray that we will not walk so carelessly with the time that you give us that we do not recognize its value. May you come today, speak to our hearts. May you challenge us. May you correct us. And God, may you equip us to the, be the people that you want to carry forth who Jesus is. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. These words, after this. What's after, what does that refer to? What was before that? And if we would look at this, I think we have to traipse all the way back to around the 27th chapter of, of 1 Samuel. And this is where David becomes so discouraged, so overwhelmed with things not turning out the way he thinks they should, that he says, I will one day perish at the hand of Saul. And he pulls the pin, he's tired of the pain, tired of the running, tired of having to look around to see if he has, someone's trying to take his life. And he goes down to the Philistines. And Saul quits chastening him. It's fine, send him down there. And we know when he went down there, he took all of his men with him and their families, and they were given a city called Ziklag. And while they were there, they were kind of incognito. They were basically two-faced. They were making them themselves look like it was great to be a part of the Philistines, and that they were, they were uh, being very loyal to them, but underneath they were going and fighting against the enemies of Israel. And yet it was 
a two-faced thing. And you know, the Lord doesn't like us being two-faced. He wants us hot or cold, lukewarm doesn't work, right? And so we find that God caught up with David. You see, Achish decided that they're going to go and fight against Israel. Well, the last people that, that David wanted to fight against was his own people. But he was caught up in his masquerade. And as a result, he was called upon to go out with them. But you know, the Lord can handle the impossible, can't he? And so we see that the, the other folks that were a part of the leadership of the Philistines said, no, no, no. We don't want him in the midst of the battle. He's going to turn coat on us in the middle of that only to make himself look good to Israel. And so we don't want him. So send him home. And I bet David's going home going, yeah, everything's good. I got out of that one. The Lord got me out of that. Maybe he didn't even feel the Lord got him out of it. But nonetheless, he goes back to Ziglag. And what happens? He finds it burnt. He finds his wife and all the wives of the men that were with him, their children, all their possessions taken. And now his two-faced masquerade situation even gets worse because now his men who have been so faithful to him want to stone him, swipe him out. And you know, David is considered a man after God's own heart. And we want to look at that and say, well, he didn't look like such a godly man. Well, he wasn't. What made him a man after God's own heart is he knew where to run. He knew that when he failed and when all else came to the end, there was a God who still loved him and one who had made a promise to him. And so he went back to that God and he cast himself upon that God. And he began to inquire of the Lord. And you remember that a man by the name of, of um, Abathar, who was a priest, he was coming from Nob. Whenever Saul had all of the priests killed in Nob, this man escaped, and he escaped with the ephod. And in the ephod, there were two stones. These, this, the high priest normally wore this. And these stones were used to discern the will of God. All the time, he's down in that Philistine country, and he's doing his own thing he didn't ask until it came to this dire place. And finally, he remembered, we've got the ephod. We've got Abathar. He's here. And he began to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said, you go down after those Amalekites who came and stole everything for you. And when you go down, because you're going down because you've been obedient to me, you've inquired of me, you've sought my face, I'll have you recover everything. I can't imagine what David must have felt. But I had to get those people persuaded. And when he said it, and when they saw that he had sought the Lord, they were ready, ready to follow him. And he came back with tremendous victory. But he comes back to a burnt-out city. And he stays there. And in the meantime, we heard a couple of weeks ago how this, this man who was an Amalekite, who had been part of the Israelite army, whether he had been a, a slave or whatever, we don't know exactly how he got over there. But nonetheless, he comes and from the point of Gilboa 
to where David was was 100, at least 100 miles. Sometimes we don't grasp what kind of distances or what kind of things are involved, but he's come, so it would take several days' journey. He probably did not know that the Amalekites had attacked David at Ziklag. He probably didn't know that because he might not have said he was an Amalekite. But nonetheless, he comes with a message. What's the message? Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. The, Israel arm, the Israeli army is fleeing. We've lost the battle. But I've come. I've got Saul's crown. I've got his armband. I'm bringing it to you. Wasn't what David wanted to hear. I wonder secretly if down in David's heart, because we never see that he, he is fighting for the kingdom. We never see that. We see him running. We see him sparing Saul. I wonder if down in the depths of David's heart, he was praying or hoping that he could be next to Jonathan again. Isn't that what Jonathan wanted? Jonathan said, we'll serve together. I think he, he wanted, well, how did he refer to Saul? My father, Saul. There was a, a, an entreaty there. So I don't think he was, he was struggling to get a hold of the kingdom. And I think his heart was broken. That now what he might have hoped could maybe have come if Saul would have come to his senses was not going to be. And on top of that, his very best friend is dead. And this man comes with the gall to say that he helped Saul to die, killed him. And we remember David, David said, how dare you touch God's anointed? Don't you realize what you've done? And he has him killed. And then among the people, now remember, we, we look at what was said last week of this wonderful dissertation that he talks about Saul and, and Jonathan and, and how he, he gives honor and, and praise even to them in the midst of this situation. How he did this before his men, before the people of that city. We don't see that he went anywhere else. He was still in Ziklag. But what is he doing in this process? He's recognizing the need of honor. You know, a great leader is not one who goes and steps on people to get where they're going. A great leader knows how to honor people in such a way that they join in and work with them and walk with them and, and, and help them. And David is learning. He's, he's coming back to realize how important it is to wait on the Lord how important it is to hear from God because he has messed things up all along the way before this and a lot of people have been hurt. So what do we see after this? After this, it says that he, he seems to have a, a self-control. You know, things look favorable now for him to take the kingdom, right? Why shouldn't he? He was the one that Samuel anointed. Why shouldn't he go take it? But he doesn't do that. And that's where we are in our lesson today. And you know, there's a, 
there's a scripture that probably most of us can quote from the book of Proverbs. And it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Right? And that word, acknowledge, is, is not to operate in your self-sufficiency or your self-will. It means to actually beg God to grant you light on what you're supposed to do. Beg God to grant you light. Acknowledge him. Make him number one. Make him king. And he will direct your path. Honor him, and he will honor you. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses, verse 1, it says, After this, David asked the Lord, Should I move back into the town of, towns of Judah? And the, the answer came, the Lord said, Yes. Now, he didn't know which town. He just knew he was supposed to go back to Judah. And, and many times we get a word, so to speak, from God, and we're, you don't do that kind of thing. We think we got it all, so we move out in our own steam. But David didn't do that. David said, which city? Wasn't enough to know he was to go back to Judah, but which city am I to go to? And I think this is so fantastic because he's, he's telling him, let's go on to read. In, in the, it says, and David asked, which town should I go to? This is in 2 uh, and verse 1. And the Lord said to Hebron. Why Hebron? What's so big about Hebron? Well, you know, I've, I've learned that you never lose anything by waiting on getting what God wants you to do. You lose when you try to do it in your own flesh to figure it out. And so there's no presumption on his part. I like that. He doesn't pursue. And one of the things that I love about the Lord is he never gets weary of us asking him. Do you know we honor him when we ask him? How many times have you felt, oh, I'm not going to bother God with that? Well, you better you better, because he wants to be bothered. He wants us to cast ourselves upon him time after time. He wants us to know and to recognize that he's the most important, and his, deci his decision is the most important, and we've got to do it his way. So we see an old song that goes along with this kind of thing. It says, it's, it's what a friend we have in Jesus, and part of it says, Oh, the peace we often forfeit. Oh, the needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry some things to God in prayer. Everything, everything to God in prayer. Now, let me tell you about Hebron. The word Hebron means communion. Coming together in communion with God. And 
what is interesting about it, the first, one of the first references, so we need to, you know, I love to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And, and when we go to this portion of Hebron, the first kind of place where we see this is where Abraham comes to the plain of Mamre, remember that? And this is after he's received the promise from God that, that he's going to have a son, and that's almost 20-some years ago. <laughs> Still has to happen. And he's in the plain of Mamre, near Hebron. And three men come. And one of those is absolutely the Lord, and maybe more than one. But one of them is the Lord and promises that he's going to have a son, and that's where we find that, that Sarah laughed. Remember that? But Hebron was a place where the promise was renewed. And God says, you get up to Hebron, said David. I'll renew the promise there for you. He was not aware that it was going to be at Hebron, where actually his family was going to come. The, the tribe of Judah was going to come and make him king, but he was to go to Hebron. The Lord knew what was going to be there. And so as we see this happen, we see also there's another place where Hebron is mentioned in the scripture. And this is where Jacob sends Joseph to his brethren to see how they were doing. Jacob and Joseph in fellowship, in communion, he sends him out to his brethren to see how they were doing. And you remember what they did? They end up, you know, sending him, selling him into slavery. I thought, what a beautiful picture of Jesus and the Father. In communion, he sent Jesus out to see about the welfare of his brother. What was he trying to say to David? David, in Hebron, as you have fellowship with me, I'm going to send you out to be able to see about the welfare of your brethren. I'm going to, you're going to be able to know what to do in relationship to the people of God. It's going to be in this place. And this was a place of waiting on God, of communion. And then there's another place where we see the truth about Hebron. And you remember, remember when the ten uh, spies went out to spy out the land, the promised land. And ten of them bring, bring back a, an evil report, but two of them don't, Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb came back recognizing what God could do that seemingly looked impossible. And it was at Hebron, God spoke to him, that, and God gave, through Moses, God told him he would have Hebron, that he would have that place of fellowship. And it was going to be at that place where he was going to attack the giants. And I think it's interesting that David is sent to Hebron to know that story. But what was the characteristic of Caleb? What did they say about him? What was his reputation? He wholly followed the Lord. What was God trying to do with David? David, you've messed up. You've gone your own direction. But now you're coming to see that you need to wait upon God. You need to inquire of God. You need to find out what God wants. 
And when you do, the promise will be renewed. And when you do, I'll be able to send you out to your brethren. And when you do, those giants will come down. You'll take that land. No, no happenstance of the word of God. A name can mean so much. Goes on to say, and, and David, in the second verse, it says, David's two wives were Ahimaam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel. Now, that's interesting that that's been put in there. You see, one of David's big problems was women. Right? If he would not have married so many women, there wouldn't have been so much trouble in his family. Right? And what did he produce in his son Solomon? He goes after 700 wives and 300 concubines. Wow. What was one of the things that Deuteronomy said a king was supposed to do? He was to write a copy of the law. And in the copy of the law, one of the things that he was told, don't multiply wives. Now, maybe David didn't get to that point yet as far as under writing that copy. But I kind of think he messed up because still he doesn't get it because he keeps multiplying wives. He must not have read that part. Neither did Solomon. But it, says, it goes on to tell us that David and his wives and his men and their families all moved to Judah and they settled in the villages near Hebron. And one of the things I see about him is he did not forget those who had, had fought with him, those who had sacrificed with him, those who had been in the caves with him, those that have gone through the difficult places with him. He remembered them. He took them with him. And great leaders don't forget how they got there. They don't forget who it was that was by their side and was, was faithful to them during those difficult times. And I see that good quality in David. He's taking these people who he could trust in and who had proven themselves to surround himself with them. And then it says in verse 4, the men of Judah came to David and crowned him king over the people of Judah. The men of Judah, which was of the tribe that he was from, were the ones who recognized first he was to be king. It's interesting that it wasn't like that with Jesus' family, was it? They didn't recognize who he was until after the resurrection. And then they became those who did exalt him for who he was and even gave their life doing it. But here, these people came. And notice, they didn't push it on the other tribes. Come on, join us. They did what they believed that they were supposed to do in anointing him king. His first anointing, you remember, was among his brothers. Remember that? It was a private anointing as king. Now we have the principal people coming from the tribe anointing him as king. We go on in 2 Samuel 
And we see that, that this whole process, first of all, of David now coming to reign in, in Hebron is a gradual one. The whole process of David coming to be what God declared he was is a gradual one. Think about Jesus. Did he come on the scene and say, hey, I'm the son of God. Did he come down in great splendor to demonstrate who he was or did it go gradually? And did he grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord? And, and did he grow in, in favor with God and man? And to see, we want, you know, somehow, I don't know where we get it. I guess it's our own selfishness. We want to step right into that place and take over. We've got it together. And the Lord's trying to show us, no, you don't. This whole process, you know the Christian life, you are going to be becoming a Christian all of your life. This is a gradual process of growth in getting to know God and getting to, to learn how to wait on him and getting to hear his voice. And so we see that, that this, this was a process and David was beginning to get it. He's beginning to get it. It says in verses 5, when David heard that the men of Jabesh Gilead had buried Saul, he sent them this message. May the Lord bless you for being so loyal to your master Saul and, give him, and giving him a decent burial. Why did these people do that? What was true about Jabesh Gilead? Remember, they were the ones that, that Nahash, this wicked king, came up against and they were... He's, they wanted to take over this people in Israel, in Jabesh Gilead, and they said, now, what we're going to do is we'll let you live if we could come and every, gouge out every man's white eye. And they were ready, they were willing that they were going to have to do that. But what happens when the right eye was gouged out of a man? He no longer was going to be able to be a soldier. Because when you would put your, your instrument, whether it be a, a bow or whatever it was, you, you need your eye, your right eye, to see. And if you're carrying a shield, most people were right-handed. The shield would be up there, and if you don't have a right eye, you can't see past your shield. So this was to devastate this particular city, to render them without any ability to be able to fight in a battle. And when Saul heard of it, he went and he summoned all of the people of Israel to come together and they went in and they saved the people of Jabesh Gilead. Well, they never forgot it. And you know, when someone who has come to your rescue in something that was so dire does it for you, you never forget that person. Regardless of what they might do, you'll never forget them. And when they heard of how Saul and his sons had been disgraced by, having their head, by being beheaded and then having their bodies pinned to the wall of Bethshan. They were not going to have it. No matter what it cost them, they were not going to have it. And they snuck away and they went and took those bodies off of the wall and they buried them. And I love David's spirit. 
David's 100 miles away. He can't do anything for his best friend, Jonathan. But these men did. And David honored them. David honored them. Again, when you value people, when you show that you value them, their hearts can be drawn to you. David is being so wise here, but I believe it's a matter of heart change. This is a matter of the heart. David's heart is beginning to see things in a whole different light than he's seen them before, and it all centers around calling out to God, finding out his mind. And so he does that. He tells, him, tells them, may the Lord bless you for being so loyal, for giving them a decent burial. And then he goes on in the next verse, it says, and may the Lord be loyal to you in return and reward you with unfailing love, and I too will reward you for what you have done. He said, you can count on the law, sow and reap. What you sow, you're going to get back. If you're merciful, you're going to obtain mercy. If, if you're harsh and, and determined and, and demanding, you're going to get the very same thing back. And David is reminding them, God's going to bless you. He's going to give back to you. He said, and I'm going to too. And then notice the next verse. He says, now, now that Saul is dead, I ask you to be my strong and loyal subjects like the people of Judah who have anointed me as their new king. I think David is coming again with a kind of heart that's saying, will you now, will you work with me? Will you come alongside of me? I've been made king. Will you come and be loyal to me? Because I'm going to be loyal to you. And when you need help, I'm going to be there too. See, that he didn't come saying, now you better be my, my servants. You better come and, 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 and buy into this kingdom. He doesn't do that. He entreats people. He values them. And doesn't tell us what they did. But I love his spirit. It goes on to tell us. But Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had already gone to Mahanium with Saul's son Ishbosheth. There he proclaimed Ishbosheth, king over Gilead, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and the land of the Asherites, and all the rest. Of Israel. Ishbosheth was the only son left alive. His name means the son of shame. Many believe that he was just not the kind of person you could ever take into a battle. He wasn't there. He's 40 years old, but he wasn't there with his father and his other brothers. Abner does what God says you're not supposed to do. You see, if you were going to have a, a king and he was going to be anointed, he was supposed to be the choice of the Lord. 
Whose choice was this? It was Abner's. And why? Because Abner could maneuver him. Because he was only a figurehead. It was Abner who wanted that, that control. He wanted position. I believe there was selfish ambition in the heart of Abner. I believe that he fought many other aspects of, for instance, he may have felt uh, rejection. He may have felt that, you know, here he had been, he had worked with David, he had been a part, but here's this young person that in Saul's kingdom comes up to the top and he's kind of put aside. Maybe he thought, now I could, I, I've been able to be in, in a place of prominence under Saul because David's been out of the picture. But if David comes back in the picture, I'm sunk and I'm not going to have it. And so his, his sense of, of rejection may have caused him to move out on his own and take this man and put him into position. There may also have been the bitterness in his heart as to why he couldn't receive David as kid. What kind of bitterness? Well, you know, I remember the time that, that the scripture says that he was sleeping beside Saul in the camp and David and, and some of his men went down and they stole the water bottle and the sword right beside Saul's head. Snuck down in the camp. And Abner was right there beside Saul. And remember how David just harassed him? What kind of a, a, what kind of a guard are you? Look, you let us sneak right in there. We could have killed him. What kind of a man are you in protecting your king? I bet that harbored in his heart. David, David, you know, and how many times do things like that harbor in our own hearts? And then I believe Satan could come along and put in his mind, you'll never have any place. He'll wipe you out. And evil thoughts. And when we were in our freedom group, these are four points that talk about blockages in our heart. It's that selfish ambition. And, you know, you think about Abner had been able to experience the good things that came as a result of David holding the positions he's had along the way. I mean, he went out to battle with David. I mean, he didn't want to go out and fight Goliath, right? But David did, and there was benefits came to him. He didn't want to, you know, he's out in battle with them, and, and they've got the, the spoils that came from those battles. He's, he's benefited in so many ways by being involved with David. He heard, he heard Saul say, I know you're going to be the next king. He heard it. And yet, he's blocked in being able to receive David as king because of his own ambition and his bitterness and his rejection and listening to wrong things. You know, it's probably some of the very reasons why 
we don't accept Jesus as our king. Oh, I know you people sit here and love the Lord. I do too. I know we love the fact that he's our savior. I know we love it when we enjoy the benefits of him working on our behalf and getting us through challenges and being our healer and encouraging us and all those wonderful things that he does. We love it. There's no question we love the Lord. But is he our king? Have we relinquished our control over our lives? Totally surrendered to him? Or do we still hold on to some of those things? Do we ever look at the circumstances that have come to us and, and feel bitter? Feel that we've been rejected, somehow God hasn't been fair. Oh, we still love him, but, but he hasn't been fair. And we let things come into our heart that keep us from saying, I don't know if I can fully trust him. Do we believe on truce at times about this marvelous Savior that we have to keep us back from making him our king? We want to do it our way, don't we? <laughs> we want freedom. But the greatest freedom comes low at his feet seeking him, wanting his will, wanting his way more than ours, and being willing to wait. Do you know, it goes on to tell us here that David made Hebron his capital. How better. Make your place of communion with God the most important place you live in. Sounds good to me. And it says here that, it also says that David ruled from there seven and a half years. Oh, wait a minute. What? He was only king over one tribe for seven and a half years. Well, why didn't God put him right ahead and put the whole kingdom there? Because he wasn't ready. Because God still had to teach him about really knowing how to rely on him and to trust him. It's a process. And God is a gentleman. He's not going to demand that you make him king. He's not going to demand. He's going to come gradually. And when you're ready to say, okay, Lord, it's all you. <laughs> I can't do this. It's not me. It's all you, whatever you want. Then he could open the door <laughs> for David to have the rest of the kingdom. We talk about being warriors. Folks, warriors is down on your knees before God and getting his mind. 
And when you get his mind, then you'll be able to tackle the things that you have to face, even if it's waiting seven and a half years to get the whole kingdom. I want to make him king. And you know what? I find out I have to do that over and over again. It's not a one-time done act. We call this an aspect of sanctification, don't we? <laughs> little by little, step by step, we come into the likeness of what Jesus wants us to be and what he wants to do through us.